2: We're going to start today with a few podcast notices. The first one is a, my bad. In the last show, I compared Cersei and Jaime Lannister to Anne Boleyn and her brother Thomas. Well, Tamara on the Facebook page wrote to remind me that actually it was George Boleyn that was her brother. Thomas is actually her father. That's what I get for coming up with a brilliant comparison in my head, and then forgetting to fact check the details. Thanks Tamara for pointing it out, you're a star. Next, I thought I'd let you know about what we have coming up my more long-suffering listeners may know that I initially planned to end the podcast with Elizabeth of York, keeping this podcast a purely medieval affair. Now, of course, I've decided against that and will be plowing well into the Tudor period with great gusto in the coming weeks, but I thought I would still take some time to take stock. Think of this as the end of season one of the Queens of England podcast. Well, not quite the end, as I will be doing a season one wrap-up show next time, where I'll go all the way back through the queens that we've covered so far, and see how things have changed over the 300-odd years between Matilda of Flanders and Elizabeth of York. Unlike most season finales, though, I won't be taking a break, and will instead be diving straight back into the action in four weeks' time. This means that I'll be covering Henry VIII and his many wives, and if you thought I spent a long time on the Queens of the Wars of the Roses period, then you should see how many episodes I have planned for Henry. I am tentatively planning on there being around 10 or so, which should take us well into next spring. For you Tudor fans out there, this must be the world's greatest news, but for those of you who like to mix things up a bit, then I have some good news for you too. I'll be throwing in probably a couple of supplementals in to keep things fresh, one over Christmas and then another in January or February time, though don't hold me to that. I already have some ideas for what I might do, but if you have any requests, then please do let me know via all the usual channels. There's the Facebook page, Queens of England Podcast, Twitter, at Queen's Podcast, and the website, queensofenglandpodcast.com, where you can reach me by email by using the contact form, or alternatively do it directly via queensofenglandpodcast at gmail.com. All links are, of course, in the show notes. If you like what you hear and want to support me directly, then head to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash queensofenglandpodcast, and of course don't forget to subscribe, rate and review on iTunes, or wherever it is that you listen to my voice every fortnight. With that in mind, I'd like to thank my latest generous donators, C, that's the initial, which is all I have to go on, and the wonderful Jennifer, who is a very proud Texan. Thanks so much guys, it's really, really appreciated. And finally... This is part two of the story of Elizabeth of York. If you missed part one, then I'd recommend going back and listening to that first. Maybe also the Elizabeth Woodville episodes as well while you're at it. For the rest of you, welcome back to our regularly scheduled programming. I hope that you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 35, Elizabeth of York, the fresh flower of Plantagenet. So, four weeks ago, we left Elizabeth of York with the birth of her first child, Arthur, and her coronation as Queen of England, two years after she had gained the title after her marriage to Henry Seventh, Arthur would not be her first or even her most important child, though. I've talked at length about how famously fertile those Woodvilles were, and Elizabeth would follow in the family tradition. In total, she would have eight children, though the final three all died in infancy. After Arthur, there came a daughter called Margaret, then Henry, who you might have already heard of, then another daughter, who died young, followed by Mary in 1496. Aside from her eldest, all of those three surviving children would make it to a throne, but we'll talk more about that later. This was a pretty good haul, an heir and a spare, as well as some daughters to marry off. Of course the personal tragedy of losing four children in infancy must have been tremendously hard for elizabeth even in a time when infant mortality was so high but given the trouble that her son would have in conceiving children this was a veritable litter of kids the court of henry the seventh has a long-standing reputation for being a dour and miserly affair usually portrayed as such by those who wish to contrast it with the magnificent renaissance court of his son henry the eighth This is best expressed by Francis Bacon, who wrote about Henry VII, quote, For all his pleasures, there is no news of them. Wow, sick burn. While this stereotype is not entirely unjustified, this only really became the case in the later years of Henry's reign, the king that Elizabeth knew actually had a rather jolly court. The pro-Yorkist historians of yesteryear are wont to portray Henry as a tyrannical, unfeeling husband who only cared for his wife's lineage, ability to conceive, and nothing else but this is clearly not the case. He knew that appearances mattered, not just for his own reputation, but that of Elizabeth, and we can see this in the rather extortionate clothing bills that have survived to us. These included payments in the thousands of pounds for gold and other precious stones, as well as for luxury fabrics like ermine, velvet, and russet cloths. They both regularly attended great feasts and through festivals, and generally flaunted their success along with their courtiers. It had been a long road to victory for Henry and the Lancastrians, and they intended to live it up. It is at their court, for example, that the position of Master of Revels was created, whom would later be arranging plays for the likes of Marlowe and Shakespeare. There are payments for, amongst other things, fools, some from as far afield as France and Spain, a bagpiper, minstrels, morris-dancers, fiddlers, and a variety of other entertainers. As Queen, the job of running the court fell to Elizabeth, and it seems that she did a great job of it, perhaps best shown by the fact that once she died, this all rather stopped abruptly. The court lifestyle, while not as itinerant as in early years, was still akin to a travelling circus. Elizabeth in general favoured palaces in the southeast, such as Westminster, Windsor, Greenwich and Richmond, but the court often went further afield in the country. What with her near-constant pregnancy, Elizabeth could not always accompany her husband on his travels, but when she could, she did. In terms of her involvement in more political matters, though, things become a little bit more limited, and this was due in no small measure to the influence of one person, her mother-in-law. I introduced Margaret Beaufort in episode 32, Elizabeth Woodville, Queen Mother Twice Over. She was the guiding force behind Henry's life so far, a scheming, two-faced, masterful politician who skillfully navigated the turbulent waters of Rose's era politics and strife, managing to be both an ardent Lancastrian, yet still survive the reigns of the Yorkist kings. Her goal for decades had been to see her son come to the throne, and now that she had managed, in no small part, to make it happen, she was not keen to let some other woman sideline her. As I said in the episode, there was barely enough room for one woman at the top of English political life, let alone two, which is why the Queen's mother, Elizabeth Woodville, had been denied any real power even before her enforced retirement to Bermondsey Abbey. What Margaret's relationship with the Queen was like is not entirely clear. Emmy Lysons, in her biography Elizabeth, paints a rather rosy picture of their relationship. Given Margaret's position at court during the reigns of her father and uncle, it is likely that they would have known each other all of Elizabeth's life, and this continued when she became queen. In records of events, they are often listed together as, quote, the queen and my lady the king's mother, and when you track their movements, they turn up at the same places a lot, even when the king and court were not present. They also co-sponsored the famed English print of William Caxton's edition of 15 O's. That said, the very proximity and equality of prominence in the sources indicates that Elizabeth was not the most important woman at court. At best, she was joint top. When it came to high politics, there is no doubt that Margaret took the lead, but this may have a lot to do with the fact that she spent zero time pregnant in these years, while Elizabeth spent a lot of it so. Pregnancy, even more so than now, was a very time-consuming business, and so Elizabeth would have spent a lot of time away from the action, while Margaret could devote all her energy to helping her son run the kingdom. This arrangement echoes the situation that wives of Eleanor of Aquitaine's kids found themselves in, and was often remarked upon by visitors from abroad. A Spanish cleric wrote the following back to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. "'The Queen is a very noble woman and much beloved. She is kept in subjection by the mother of the King. It would be a good thing to write often to her and show her a little love.'" Another visitor a spanish diplomat called rodrigo gondolzade de Puebla concurred saying the king is much influenced by his mother and his followers in affairs of personal interest and in others the queen as is generally the case does not like it there is no doubt that margaret was a very protective mother whose only real cause was the success of her son She was a highly experienced and skilled political manoeuvrer, while Elizabeth was a young, constantly pregnant woman whom the king had only really met on marriage. It is hardly surprising that Henry leaned more on his mother than his wife. That said, there is no doubt that Margaret did care for Elizabeth, and particularly the grandchildren, and it is not certain, like with Anne Neville, that Elizabeth would have been overly unhappy with this arrangement. This would suggest that Elizabeth of York was completely passive, but this was not the case. Another report from de Puebla describes a meeting between himself, the king and queen, and Margaret. He gave the queen two letters from Ferdinand and Isabella, and another two from Catherine of Aragon, who we'll get on to in a bit. According to de Puebla, quote, The king had a dispute with the queen because he wants to have one of the said letters to carry continually about him, but the queen did not like to part with hers, having sent the other to the Prince of Wales. One does not often say no to a king, it wasn't the done thing, and so Elizabeth here is really showing her confidence in the king's affections. It also displays that she was no doormat, she could take care of herself. We can see from their correspondence that de Puebla and the Spanish royals were big fans of the queen. In a letter written a month after the instance I mentioned before, he described the moment that he gave the letters to her. Quote, She was overjoyed. The Queen is the most distinguished and most noble lady in the whole of England. She sent for the Latin secretary and ordered him to write in her presence two letters, one of them to the Queen of Spain and the other to the Princess of Wales. That would be Catherine. Du Pueblo goes on to say that the Latin secretary confided in him that, quote, he was obliged to write the said letters three or four times because the Queen had always found some defect in them. They are not things of great importance in themselves, but they show cordial love. A few things here. First of all, I can't tell you how much I would love to have a Latin secretary. Not sure what I'd do with him, but who doesn't want all their records transcribed into Latin? Just me? Okay, maybe I'm the weird one. More seriously, the fact that she continually had him rewriting these letters shows that she must have had a serious grasp of Latin to be able to spot the errors or phrasing that she did not like and correct them. She is also in this regard clearly very involved in matters of state, perhaps simply because this was her eldest son, and thus she was allowed a role. I'm not going to talk much about the marriage of Elizabeth's son Arthur to Catherine of Aragon, because I will do so in more detail in a later episode, but I will get into the negotiations for the marriage, since Elizabeth did play a part in it. Catherine was the daughter of the King of Aragon and the Queen of Castile, basically Spain, but also not, for reasons that are quite complicated. The match was a sound one, as it allied England to Europe's big up-and-coming power against the old enemy France, and gave some much-needed legitimacy to this new royal house. Interestingly, the mammoth list of people who had a stronger claim to the throne than Henry VII included Catherine, as she was related to John of Gaunt through his two wives, not his mistress, as Henry was. Elizabeth's involvement in this process was quite extensive, as it was her who would essentially be in charge of ensuring Catherine would acclimate properly into this very foreign court. During the marriage negotiations, Elizabeth wrote a letter to Queen Isabella, and since it's one of the only times we get to hear her in her own words, I will quote it in full. To the most serene and potent princess, the Lady Isabella, by God's grace, Queen of Castile, Leon, Aragon, Sicily, Granada, etc., our cousin and dearest relation, Elizabeth, by the same grace, Queen of England and France and Lady of Ireland, which is health and the most prosperous increase of her desires. Although we have before entertained singular love and regard to your highness above all other queens in the world, as well as for the consanguinity and necessary intercourse which mutually take place between us, as also for the eminent dignity and virtue by which your said majesty so shines, and excels that your most celebrated name is noised abroad and diffused everywhere. So here we have Elizabeth kissing Isabella's butt, when talking about how wonderful and noble she is, as well as emphasising their familial relations. Normally, consanguinity would be a bad thing, but here it is brought up as a benefit. It also references the difference in stature. Isabella was a great conquering queen, Elizabeth was not. The letter continues, quote, Yet much more has this love increased and accumulated by the accession of the most noble affinity, which has recently been celebrated between the most illustrious Arthur, Prince of Wales, our eldest son, and the most illustrious Princess Catherine, the Infanta, your daughter. Hence it is that, amongst our other cares and cogitations, first and foremost, we wish and desire from our heart that we may often and speedily hear of the health and safety of your serenity, and of the health and safety of the aforesaid illustrious Lady Catherine, whom we think of and esteem as our own daughter, that which nothing can be more grateful and acceptable to us. Therefore, we request your serenity to certify of your estate, and that of the aforesaid most illustrious Lady Catherine, our common daughter. This is a really nice personal touch. She goes out of her way to inquire fully about the health of both Isabella and Catherine, and twice refers to the latter as her daughter, emphasising that she will be well taken care of should the proposed marriage take place. While the language in this letter is clunky and mired in legalism protocol, this is a shining moment of personality. It continues, quote, and if there be anything in our power which would be most grateful or pleasant to your majesty, use us and ours as freely as you would your own. For, with a most willing mind, we offer all that we have to you, and wish to have all in common with you. We should have written to you the news of our state and that of this kingdom, but the most serene lord, the king, my husband, will have written at length of these things to your majesties. For the rest, may your majesty fare most happily according to your wishes. From our Palace at Westminster, 3rd day of December, 1497. So finally here, Elizabeth closes the letter by essentially emphasising her subordination to her husband, by saying that she had to defer writing certain aspects because her husband wished to do so in a different letter. The very fact that she wrote it at all shows that she was no bit part figure when it came to affairs of state. She could very easily have just been a signatory to the letter written by Henry, but no, she had the influence and confidence to write herself to the most powerful woman in Europe, and tactfully treat her as an equal. Like I said, Elizabeth's role in all of this was to take care of Catherine's welfare, and something that she was very much concerned with was the language barrier. In July 1498, de Puebla forwarded a request from Elizabeth and her mother-in-law Margaret, asking that Catherine, quote, should always speak French with the Princess Margaret, who is now in Spain, in order to learn the language and be able to converse in it when she comes to England. This is necessary because the ladies do not understand Latin, and much less Spanish. They also wished that the Princess of Wales should accustom herself to drink wine. The water of England is not drinkable, and even if it were, the climate would not allow the drinking of it. She really had thought of everything. We even have a progress report from three years later. Quote, The King, the Queen, and the Prince of Wales have great pleasure in hearing that the Princess Catherine is beginning to learn French. The Queen especially rejoices at the progress the Princess is making in the French language. These interactions are the most obvious forays that Elizabeth made into politics and diplomacy. That, though, is not necessarily to say that she did not make more, these are just the most significant. There is record of her recommending such and such a person to such and such a job, but nothing hugely interesting. Other than this, then, while Margaret Beaufort was in general the main political female voice in Henry's ear, Elizabeth focused more on the kids, both in bearing them and also in supervising their growing up. Her incredible love of music, seen in the royal court, is also shown in the upbringing of the children. They were entertained by wrestlers, jugglers, singers, and dancers, and there are records of both Margaret and Mary getting expensive lutes. Her son Arthur was raised separately from his brothers and sisters, as he was gaining an education in how to run a kingdom, but he was also given a musical education in the form of the Fairfax Book, a collection of choral songs about various things, including courtly love and religious introspection. One such song appears to have been written for the Queen. It is called In a Glorious Garden Green, and describes the Queen in a Garden full of flowers. Because I can't get enough of the fact that we actually have some music for this period, I'm going to play a part of this song for you now. You can find the source material in the show notes. Note the references to the White Rose, of course that would be her, the Gilly Flower, which was the symbol of her mother Elizabeth Woodville, and the Fleur de Lis, perhaps a reference to her being dumped by the Dauphin when she was a girl.
0: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.
2: Her love of the arts was not confined to music. I mentioned earlier that she and Margaret were patrons of the printer William Caxton, but she is also known to have patronised and purchased a variety of other books, mostly religious in nature. One such book is in the British Library, and is a book of hours, a devotional text containing collections of psalms, prayers, and Bible extracts. It is called The Hours of Elizabeth the Queen, and is absolutely gorgeous. It's been digitised, and I put a link to it in the show notes, which I encourage you to go look at. Speaking of religion, she was also a good queen in this area, still very important in this period. She made regular pilgrimages to the Lady of House Nazareth at Walsingham Priory in Norfolk, and particularly venerated the Virgin Mary, Saint Elizabeth, for whom she and her mother were named, and the Feast of the Visitation. There is also a record of her writing to the Pope, petitioning him to grant 300 days of pardon to those who recited, quote, The whole salutation of Our Lady Ave Maria Grazia, three times after the tolling of the Angelus Bell. She gave regularly to a Carthusian house called Jesus of Bethlehem, a particularly ascetic order that her mother had also supported. This is not to mention other monies given as donations or as alms to the poor. Indeed, Catherine was well known for her generosity. In fact, possibly, she was overgenerous. Earlier, I was talking about de Puebla and his influence in the negotiation for the marriage of Prince Arthur to Catherine of Aragon. Well, Henry and Catherine were so pleased with de Puebla's work that they wanted to reward him. At first, they offered him a position in the clergy, which he declined. Next, they offered him an honourable marriage, which again, he had no intention of doing. Why marry some woman in grey, rainy old England, when he could find a wife in sunny Spain? However, at the end of the day, de Puebla was an ambassador who understood the complexities of diplomatic protocol, and so when Henry, and particularly Catherine, refused to take the hint, and continued to offer him a wife, he was forced to come up with a way of saying yes, while at the same time meaning no, while appearing to say yes. According to records, he was, quote, persuaded principally by the Queen to accept the marriage, but under the express condition that his King and Queen must first give him consent. Ferdinand and Isabella then helped out the diplomat by using their pocket veto and simply ignoring the request. He then wrote to his rulers, thanking them for ignoring the request for, quote, the marriage which the Queen of England had offered to him. The years 1502 to 1503 would be the bitterest of bittersweet years for Elizabeth of York. It began very happily with the marriage of her eldest surviving daughter Margaret to James IV, King of Scots. This wedding was a very long time in the making and was deeply interwoven with the marriage alliance with Spain. Ferdinand and Isabella were super unkeen to send their daughter to England when it could at any point be overrun by Scots. James had earlier in his reign supported the attempted insurrection by Perkin Warbeck, and had offered himself as a prospective husband to Ferdinand and Isabella, but they were far keener on him marrying into the Tudor house, specifically Henry's daughter Margaret, rather than to their daughter. Henry himself was super unkeen on the match at first, and in a letter written by the Spanish ambassador back to the court in Madrid, we see how he could use his wife as a diplomatic pawn. He first states that, of course, he would be delighted, in theory, to marry his daughter to James, but it was sadly not possible, as she was, at the age of eight, too young and delicate to be married. He then goes on to say, "'Besides my own doubts, the Queen and my mother are very much against this marriage. They say that if the marriage were concluded, we would be obliged to send the princess directly to Scotland, in which case they fear the King of Scots would not wait but injure her and endanger her health. Therefore, I do not wish you to trouble yourself about this affair.'" Now, it is actually possible that there is a kernel of truth in this, as Margaret Beaufort herself had been married very young to Edmund Tudor, who had impregnated her at the age of just 13. Her experience of childbirth was so traumatic and caused such long-term damage that she would only give birth once, and so this could have had an influence on Henry's concern. By invoking his wife and mother, though, Henry is showing how Elizabeth's position as queen, mother of princesses, could be useful. He could use their quote unquote womanly concerns, their overprotective motheringly tendencies, to get himself out of a diplomatic jam. When eventually the marriage alliance was concluded in fifteen oh two, it was on Henry's terms, and so Elizabeth's eldest daughter was made Queen of Scots, which must have been a very proud moment for her. The departure of Margaret to Scotland was delayed until the summer of fifteen oh three, while they waited for her to turn thirteen. Eventually she left for Scotland in June of fifteen oh three. Her marriage would not turn out to be a happy one, as James was not altogether delighted with his English alliance, and not keen to be very faithful to his wife. The Woodville gift of fertility no more passed to Margaret as it did to her brother Henry, as she would have terrible trouble conceiving children, with only one James surviving. Why am I telling you this? Well, James would have a daughter Mary, whom you may know as Mary Queen of Scots. And it is her son, also called James because Scottish kings have no imagination, that would bail out England when the Tudor line died out with the death of Elizabeth I in 1603, a hundred years after the marriage of James to Margaret. But more on that in a later episode. To pull back from that little tangent, my point is that things were going well, but a couple of months before her departure, two tragedies struck the royal family. First was the death of Prince Arthur, her eldest child. According to one account, it was a quote, lamentable and most pitiful disease and sickness that with so sore and great violence had battled and drivelled in singular parts of him inward. That cruel and fervent enemy of nature, the deadly corruption, did utterly vanquish and overcome the pure and friendful blood without all manner of physical blood and remedy. Man, I hope that something that eloquent ends up in my obituary. This is the only account that we have, and so it's hard to diagnose what killed him, but it may have been a sweating sickness. The king and queen took the death of their son very hard indeed, and here we get a wonderful insight into the humanity of the grieving parents. Arthurs Chamberlain wrote to the king's ministers, who in turn sent for the king's confessor, To whom they showed this most sorrowful and heavy tidings, and desired him in his best manner to show it to the king. The confessor then found Henry, and asked if he could speak to him in private, whereupon he told him the terrible news. The chronicle continues, When his grace understood that sorrowful heavy tidings, he sent for the queen, saying that he and his queen would take the painful sorrows together. After that she was come and saw the king her lord, and that natural and painful sorrow, as I have heard say... She, with full and constant comfortable words, besought his grace that he would first after God remember the weal of his own noble person, the comfort of his realm, and of her. She then said that my lady his mother had never no more children, but him only, and that God by his grace had ever preserved him, and brother him where he was. Over that, how that God had left him yet one fair prince, two fair princesses, and that God is where he was, and we are both young enough, and that the prudence and wisdom of his grace sprung all over Christendom, so that it should please him to take this accordingly thereunto. Then the king thanked her of her good comfort. So here we have the queen acting as the king's rock, comforting him in his great grief. Interestingly, the grief of the king here is presented as being primarily dynastic, He seems most upset because his plans for the succession were in danger, as Elizabeth's words of comfort are mostly about saying, yes, we lost Arthur, but we still have another son as well as daughters, and we are still young enough to have more children. Now, this may have more to do with the mind of the medieval chronicler than the actual feelings of the king and queen, but then again, maybe not. They had both lost a number of children in their infancy, and so they were accustomed to loss. At the genesis of a new dynasty, they had to think practically, and it seems Elizabeth was doing that for Henry but apparently she was just putting on a brave face. The account continues, saying, After she was departed and come to her own chamber, natural and motherly remembrance of that great loss smote her so sorrowful to the heart that those who were about her were fain to send for the king to comfort her. Then his grace of true gentle and faithful love in good haste came and relieved her and showed her how wise counsel she had given him before, and he for his part would thank God for his son, and would she do in likewise. We so rarely get a window on the true affection that was sometimes held between kings and queens of England, and this is one of the most eloquent and beautiful. I wish I could tell you that things would get better, that this was the bottom of the slide of fortune, but alas, no, it is all downhill from here. Arthur had died in April 1502, and it seems that Henry had taken his wife's words to heart concerning the fact that they were both still young enough, as once again Elizabeth was pregnant. The child was born on the 2nd of February, 1503 prematurely, while the Queen was staying in the Tower rather than her preferred Richmond Palace. While childbirth at this point was considerably riskier than today, there are actually surprisingly few examples of Tudor women dying in childbirth. The risk to the child's health was far, far greater than to the mother. Elizabeth, unfortunately, was to be the exception that proved the rule. Elizabeth died on the 11th of February, on the day of her 37th birthday, and was survived by her daughter only by a week. The reaction to her death was one of unimaginable grief for the king, and indeed the kingdom. One source claims that the queen's death was, quote, as heavy and dolorous to the king as ever was seen or heard of, and likewise to all the states of his realm, as well citizens as commons, for she was one of the most gracious and best beloved princesses in the world in her time. After making some arrangements for the funeral, Henry ordered a barge taken from the tower to Richmond Palace, where he privily departed to a solitary place to pass his sorrow and would that no man should resort to him but such as his grace appointed. One place that suffered greatest from Elizabeth's death is that of the Tower of London itself. Once a favored residence of kings throughout the middle ages, Henry essentially abandoned it. In future, monarchs would stay there before their coronations, but otherwise it would languish as a prison and armoury, not a place fit for royalty. Her body lay in state in the tower for 11 days, where her family and ladies-in-waiting kept a constant vigil. After this, a funeral was held at Westminster Abbey. Her coffin was led through the streets of London, and was interred in a tomb that was initially intended for the use of Henry VI. After her death, her grieving husband built a new chapel around it, which today is known as Henry VII Chapel. The funeral was lavish, costing nearly £3,000, more than five times what had been spent on Prince Arthur's, and spoke to the place in the heart of the kingdom that Elizabeth held. She had been the symbol of the peace that had been reached, the woman who had united two warring houses. She had avoided controversy and provided England with a healthy son who could rule after the king was dead. Her fame had reached far and wide, with foreign royals adding to the tributes made by her countrymen. It is widely believed that Elizabeth's death irrevocably changed Henry the Seventh whether it had been her influence keeping his demons at bay, or if grief flipped a switch in his psyche, the Henry that England saw after the death of his wife was more paranoid and more ruthless, though this change is perhaps not quite as stark as some historians have made out. His reputation as a tyrannical miser largely dates from this period after Elizabeth's death. Elizabeth of York was one of England's most popular queens in her own time, I would argue indeed that in terms of filling the brief of what was expected of her, she ticked every single box, and then mostly left it there. Her boat was firmly stuck to the port, not pushed out in any way, which means that she does not go down in the history books among people like Margaret of Anjou or Isabella of France, who tried to do more than was expected. Let's tick off her achievements. Achieve a peace between their houses with her marriage, other than a couple of inevitable rebellions? Check. Produce an heir, spare, and daughters for marrying off to foreign princes. Check. Provide support for her husband while not getting in the way. Check. Be a good Christian, and support the less fortunate. Check. For these things and more, Elizabeth of York must go down as one of England's most successful queens, and as I said earlier, this was something that was very much felt at the time. By her tomb was left a poem that began, quote, Here lieth the fresh flower of Plantagenet, Here lieth the white rose in the red set. Her son Henry fell to death very greatly, reportedly being inconsolable for a long time. When he reached the throne and his second daughter was born, he named her Elizabeth, most certainly after his mother, and when that daughter was crowned Queen Regnant of England in 1559, the following was read at her coronation pageant. The two princes that sit under a one cloth of state, the man in the red rose, the woman in white, Henry the Seventh and Queen Elizabeth his mate, by ring of marriage, as man and wife unite both heirs to both their bloods, to Lancaster the king, the queen to York, in one the two houses did knit, of whom as heir to both Henry the Eighth did spring, in whose seat is true heir that Queen Elizabeth doth sit. Once again, it is Elizabeth's lineage, her royal Yorkist blood, that is emphasised above all else, shining her legitimacy onto her husband, their children, and their grandchildren. Yet perhaps the most verbose and eloquent tribute was left by a young lawyer named Thomas Moore, who we've mentioned before and will do so again in episodes to come. This sums up, I think, best just how Elizabeth is remembered by her people, and the image of her that her husband and children were keen to promote. A woman of great lineage, a pious woman, a mother of great children. O ye that put your trust and confidence in worldly joy and fail prosperity, that so live here as ye should never hence. Remember that death and look here on me, example I think there may no better be. Yourself, worth well that in this realm was I, your queen but late, and lo, now here I lie. Was I not born of old worthy lineage? Was not my mother queen, my father king? Was I not a king's fierce companion in marriage? Had I not plenty of every present thing? Merciful God, this is a strange reckoning. Riches, honour, wealth and ancestry hath me forsaken, and lo, now here I lie. If worship might have kept me, I had not gone. If wit might have me saved, indeed, I needed not fear. If money might have hold, I lacked none. But, O good God, what veiled all this gear? When death is come, thy mighty messenger. Obey we must, there is no remedy. Me hath he summoned, and lo, now here I lie. Yet was I late promised otherwise, this year to life and wealth and delice. Lo whereto cometh thy blandishing promise of false astrology and devonatrice of god's secrets making thyself so wise how true is for this year thy prophecy the year yet last and lo now here i lie o brittle wealth i full of bitterness and thy single pleasure doubled is with pain i count my sorrow first and my distress in sundry wise and reckon there again the joy that i have had and i dear sane for all my honour endured there have i More woe than wealth, and lo, now here I lie. Where are our castles now, where are our towers? Goodly Richmond, soon art thou gone from me. At Westminster, that costly work of yours. Mine own dear Lord, now shall I never see. Almighty God vouchsafe to grant that ye, for you and your children, may well edify. My palace built is, and lo, now here I lie. Adieu, mine own spouse, my worthy Lord. The faithful love that did us both combine in marriage peaceful concord, into your hands, here I do resign, to be bestowed on your children and mine, erst were ye father, and now must ye supply, the mother's part also, for here I lie. Farewell my daughter, Lady Margaret, God what full of it grieve hath my mind, that ye should go where we might seldom meet, now I am gone, and have left you behind, O mortal folk, but we be very blind. What we at least fearful oft it is most nigh from you depart I first for lo now here I lie farewell madam my lord's worthy mother comfort your son and be of good cheer take it up worth for it will be no other farewell my daughter catherine late the fair unto prince arthur late my child so dear it booteth not for me to wail and cry pray for my soul for lo now here I lie adieu lord henry loving son adieu our lord increase your honour and estate Adieu, my daughter Mary, bright in hue. God make you virtuous, wise, and fortunate. Adieu, sweetheart, my little daughter Kate. Thou shalt, sweet babe, such is thy destiny. Thy mother never knew, for lo, now here I lie. Lady Cecily, Lady Anne, and Lady Catherine, farewell, my well-beloved sisters three, O Lady Bridget, other sister mine, lo, here the end of worldly vanity. Now are you well who earthly folly flee, and heavenly things do praise and magnify? Farewell and pray for me, for lo, now here I lie. Adieu my lords, adieu my ladies all, adieu my faithful servants every one. adieu my commons, who I never shall see in this world. Wherefore to thee alone, immortal God, verily three in one, I me command thy infinite mercy, show thy servant, for lo, now here I lie. And that's it for this week. As I said in the intro, next time I will be doing a brief survey of all our queens so far, which will wrap up season one of the Queens of England podcast, taking stock ahead of the mammoth task of covering the six wives of Henry VIII. (laughs)